0: Welcome to another episode of Empire State of Cannabis. We're going with the theme of attorneys for another episode and actually attorneys from Hiller PC, Uh, but we actually have uh, the man himself, uh, Mike Hiller. Um, Welcome to Empire State of Cannabis, Mike.
1: Hey, thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so a little background on Mike, and actually, Mike, I'll let you, you know, kind of expand on it. But he is the founding member and managing partner at Hiller PC. Hiller PC, as we talked about last time, um, you know, with Jess Gonzalez, who is an associate there. Uh, they've become a kind of a cannabis powerhouse um, in terms of, you know, um, you know, law firms with cannabis practice areas. You know, heavily involved in, you know, licensing, but also as we're going to discuss today. In federal legalization and litigation against the federal government. So, so Mike led the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, so, Mike, why don't you, if I missed anything there, I said that was short to the point. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that lawsuit, how you got involved, and in, you know, really what the the goal was on it?
1: Uh, I'll tell you, it was one of those uh, instances where we sort of fell. I sort of fell into it. Um, Lauren Rudick of my firms, my, uh, the co-founder of the cannabis practice here, invited me to a meeting uh, of a local bar association, which was considering a challenge uh, at the state level with, with respect to the Compassionate Care Act here in New York. And um, the type of challenge necessary was a really esoteric type of um, uh, legal proceeding called an Article 78. Uh, even the lawyers in New York who practice here don't know very much about Article 78s but I do because I handle it in other aspects of my practice. So um, she asked me to come along uh, to this meeting and, um, and I went. And uh, before I knew it, I was being asked uh, what kind of lawsuit I would wanna bring if I had my druthers and can do whatever I want. And I really didn't believe in the Article 78 approach uh, because I've been handling those cases for decades. And what is Article 78? Just- an Article 78 is like a specialized um, Proceeding, where you ask the state to um, to review its procedures or its rulemaking, and there's a it, it's it's difficult to explain, but the long and the short of it is we have to we would be required to show that the state acted arbitrarily, capriciously, or rationally in rendering its determinations concerning rulemaking or regulatory or the regulatory um, um, re- regime here in New York, and the problem with that is that. Article 7, that's a very high bar to to prove. To say that the state or the city acted irrationally, arbitrary, capriciously, it's very, very difficult. Uh, Very few lawyers have succeeded in Article 78. I have, though, uh, and I'm not saying that's because I'm a a great lawyer, it's just that I've won these things, and so that's why uh, Lauren said, "Listen, Michael, they need you to come in because you're the only lawyer I know has ever won an Article 78." Hmm. Uh, so um, I said, I, "I wasn't really in favor of an Article 78. I, I really wanted to bring a federal civil rights lawsuit um, on behalf of medical cannabis patients and persons of color who have been wrongfully prosecuted under the Controlled Substances Act." And my 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 objectives with the case were to make cannabis freely available uh, to medical patients. Uh, to expunge the criminal records of persons who have been wrongfully convicted under the Controlled Substance Act, particularly persons of color who have been targeted by the federal government since 1970. Uh, and uh, so that's what I really wanted to achieve. And the nice thing about proceeding in that way is there, the, the standard that I just talked about, that sort of high bar proving that the determinations were irrational, that's not the standard in federal civil rights litigation. So I thought we actually had a better chance of winning that case than pursuing an agenda against the state. And if we had won at the federal level, believe it or not, it would have rendered most of the state uh, regulatory programs, um, uh, would, would have forced them to change for the better. Because mm-hmm. had we won at the federal level, uh, people would have had the right uh, under federal law to, you know, to buy, to grow, to distribute cannabis. And it really would have required a re-examination in every state legal jurisdiction of the country. So that was really why we did it and and we were quite optimistic at the outset. Hmm. What
0: was the core, like, what was the base of the argument here, right, from, it, it's, you, you talk about it's a civil rights case. So, you know, what is the argument in terms of, you know, looking at the Controlled Substances Act? Is it that the Controlled Substances Act altogether, you believe to be unconstitutional or violating, you know, the civil rights of, of Americans or, uh, or, you know, medical patients and people of color, or is it specifically marijuana um, that you were, you were looking at?
1: Uh, Well, what we were looking at was um, the extent to which the the Controlled Substance Act uh, violates the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution, but specifically the Fifth, mostly. Um, And the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution uh, essentially requires that um, the government cannot deprive you of your life, your liberty, or your property without due process. Mm. And um, what essentially that comes down to in this context is if you need a medication to keep you alive, and the government knows that and deprives you of that medication, they are depriving you of your life and certainly your health uh, without due process, without a trial. Uh, and we've seen this in other contexts. Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean, like any federal restrictions on abortion rights, for example. Uh, if some, if, if a woman wants to terminate a pregnancy uh, because her pregnancy would, um, if, it, if it went to term, could endanger her life. The Supreme Court, even the most conservative members of the Supreme Court, have said, wait a minute, we, can't, we cannot enforce a restriction against abortion for women whose life or health would be endangered by the pregnancy because it would violate the Fifth Amendment. It would prevent people from living. It would deprive them of their liberty if they weren't able to maintain their health. So we must make an exception to any rule restricting abortion so that women can preserve their health and lives. <clears throat> from our perspective, cannabis is a natural extension of that doctrine, uh, medical cannabis. Uh, I represented uh, three medical patients who need medical cannabis to live. And right now there is a federal law that prohibits them from uh, taking an administration of that medication to live. Now they live in state legal jurisdictions, so they can access it uh, through a state program. But the problem is that there are all sorts of restrictions that result from the federal federal prohibition that that really limit their lives in other ways. I'll give you an example, uh, Alexis Bortel, who's a remarkable kid. Um, she can't get into public high school right now. She can't get into high school because uh, the high school that she go- attends is concerned that if she brings her medical cannabis on campus with her, um, they may lose funding. Uh, she cannot access her father's or her, her mother's uh, veterans benefits because she has to walk on the me- on the, um, the military base in order to access the health benefits, to access the access the other feder- veterans benefits. So she has to forego these rights that she would otherwise have simply because she needs to take a medication that the federal government, in, in an insane uh, determination, has ruled. Is uh, has no medical applications in the United States whatsoever. And, and we all know that's not true. Even the federal government knows that's not true. So what we argued to the, to the courts was that any prohibition that prevents Alexis and the other plaintiffs we represented, any medical patient in the country from accessing a life-saving medication um, is unconstitutional and a violation of, of their civil rights. And at the outset of the case, Kalen, We went for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction. And what was amazing is, when we walked into the courtroom, the judge within five minutes said, I'm not granting this application, but if you'd like, uh, you're free to make your record on the record. And he let me make my argument. Kalen, we argued for two hours. And at the Mm -hmm. end of that argument, we could see that there was an enlivened debate among the judicial staff as to whether or not we were gonna win that temporary restraining order. And it would have been the first uh, injunction against the enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act since it was enacted in 1970. So this was an enormous moment. Uh, And unfortunately, the judge at the last minute said, no, he wasn't gonna grant it, but he gave us, set us up for an immediate trial, six months, we would have a trial. uh, uh, And this this was gonna be the first case ever to go to trial on the Constitutionality Controlled Substances Act. Um, and then for some reason, out of nowhere, a couple of months later, he changed his mind and then dismissed the case.
0: And dismissed the case, yeah. Wow. With, you know, why, why did he dismiss the case? Did he make a, you
1: know. Something he said, it? Uh, it was interesting, the federal government filed a 56 page, 52 page brief, making multiple arguments. And on page 49 of their brief, they made this really strange argument. We thought it was a strange argument. And there is an argument, the argument was that in order to challenge a control, the scheduling of a substance from the Controlled Substance Act, if you wanted to challenge it, you had to go to the DEA and file what's called a descheduling or rescheduling petition. And the court said, you know what, <clears throat> this is really just an effort by you to uh, bypass that petitioning process. So you know what, I'm going to force you to file a petition with the DEA. And um, <clears throat> the problem with that argument, Caitlin, uh, not to get too deep into the weeds here, is yeah. that uh, number one, it takes not an average of nine years, historically, for the DEA to respond to a petition to deschedule or reschedule cannabis or any other substance on the controlled substance act. Yeah, That's a long time for yeah. someone who needs medication to live. Alexis, Alexis won't be able to, you know, her high school will be over, college will be over for her. Um, so that doesn't really make any sense. Uh, the second problem with it is that under uh, a, a determination made by the DEA back in 2016, um, they rule the DEA ruled, that cannabis can never be descheduled from the Controlled Substances Act because um, there's a treaty, treaty obligation, single right? Right. Yep, the single yep. convention treaty. Hmm. And so under the single convention treaty, according to the DEA, cannabis can never go below schedule two. I tried to explain to the court that if I went to the DEA and asked to reschedule it, I would be risking the possibility that the DEA might say we can't go to schedule, we can't deschedule. So what we're going to do is we're going to reschedule to two because that's the lowest we can go. Hmm. And you know, I'm sure your listeners know and you know, the only thing worse than being on schedule one is being on any other uh, schedule. If you're on schedule two, the FDA takes control. Yeah. Every ca- every cannabis company in America would have to you know deal with phased in uh, D, uh, FDA trial the stages and trials and it would literally put every cannabis company out of business within 30 minutes so I was not going to risk that so um, I, I told the courts I would not file a petition with the DEA I would sooner file a lawsuit against the DEA challenging uh, the DEA's uh, legal position that the single convention, uh, limits um, the government's ability to deschedule cannabis because the truth is there are a lot of com- countries around the world that are parties to the Single Convention, like Canada, for example, huh. that have legalized cannabis nationwide. So uh, I disagree with the DEA, but I'm certainly not going to risk the DEA uh, recalendaring or rescheduling cannabis from one to two or any other uh, schedule number or any other classification that could risk every cannabis company in the country.
0: Well, I mean, and you hear this a lot about the treaty obligation, right? Because, you know, for the listeners, I mean, there's, there's three ways the, you know, DEA can, um, you know, decide uh, basically through administrative rules, you know, how they're going to regulate cannabis or anything else, right? You know, one is a law uh, passed by Congress, signed by the president. Another one's executive, uh, order. And, and the last is a treaty obligation. The treaty obligation is, it doesn't, it's not used very often, but in the case of cannabis, it seems like it comes up all the time, right? So do you see that as like, well, you mentioned Canada. I mean, do you see that as a, as a real roadblock or just kind of a cop out from the DEA to continue to, you know, um, persecute Americans uh, when it comes to cannabis?
1: um i see it as the latter um i think that the decision to maintain cannabis on schedule one is a purely political uh determination it is not it's not medically based and we know this because the dea is required to consult the department of health and human services on all um rescheduling and descheduling petitions and the dea always says we consulted with hhs and the HHS says that cannabis belongs on Schedule 1. In order to be on Schedule 1, three requirements have to be met, one of which is that there is absolutely no medical, accepted medical use of the substance in the United States. We know that the HHS doesn't believe that because the Department of Health and Human Services owns two cannabis, medical cannabis pra- uh, patents.
0: Correct. One yeah. is
1: a, a world in- intellectual property uh, patent, and the other is a domestic patent. And they both say that uh, cannabis is effective in the treatment of disease. Well, there's also so a mean,
0: federal medical cannabis program too. Right?
1: Yeah, this this yeah. federal me- medical cannabis program. There's the fact that the US government is tolerating right now uh, approximately, what, 38, uh, 40 medical legal jurisdictions. There are 18 um, adult use jurisdictions. Um, we have the GROW operation at the University of Mississippi. Uh, we have the um, Investigational New Drug Program which allows the federal government to distribute cannabis to medical patients around the country for treatment of disease since 1976. Uh, I mean, the amount of evidence is legion. The federal government is fully acknowledging that medical cannabis is effective in the treatment of disease. I mean, after all, uh, since 2014, every year, there's an appropriations rider that specifically restricts the DEA and the Justice Department from prosecuting people acting in conformity with state, uh, medical cannabis laws. Uh, I mean, if, if, if that isn't proof positive that, you know, the, um, that, uh, cannabis has accepted medical uses in the United States, I don't know what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to stay on this, you know, medical necessity, are you aware of, um, a case back in 2009 in Colorado, uh, that involved, um, Jason love and, uh, you know, basically they brought this, uh, he was arrested with, uh, Two pounds, um, a little over two pounds, and basically made the argument that you know, who's to say what the medical necessity amount of cannabis is and that that you know the um, referendum that was passed in Colorado was uh, you know basically not clear enough. Um, does, did that have any inspiration for this case? I know that was that was very, very big at least in Colorado. Uh,
1: you know, it really didn't. I mean for me, when I when I got involved in this, um, my principal concern was uh, for um, patients uh, I, who, uh, whom I was aware of, and I I was really moved by the Alexis Bortel story in particular. Mm-hmm. Although obviously Sebastian Cot, uh, who uh, I say Jagger Cott, uh, a little boy in Georgia, also was very moving. Uh, Jose Belen. Uh, a veteran in Florida were also deeply inspirational to me. But what I really, what really was the insp- uh, the overarching sentiment in terms of like how we sort of uh, characterized the lawsuit is uh, really framed the lawsuit. As I actually started thinking about Brown versus Board of Education, I know that's a lofty uh, premise, but Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated the schools in the United States back in the nineteen fifties, uh, really uh, began with. A dream to integrate America's schools, and um, I, I, there were—I I will tell you, Kailyn—there were a number of people who said that we were dreaming too big. And my response to that was, you know, only by dreaming of the absurd can we achieve the impossible. Who ever would have thought that back in the early 1950s that uh, the schools would be desegregated? Who ever thought that a conservative U.S. Supreme Court? would recognize gay marriage as a constitutional right. Yeah. And that the lawyers who prosecuted that case on behalf of uh, the individuals who wanted to get married would be um, Ted Olson and David Boies, the lawyers who are on the opposite sides of Bush versus Gore, the conservative Republican and liberal Democrat. Um, I, I think that we have to fight with the belief that eventually if we are right, we will be able to get in front of the right people and prove our case. And that ultimately was how we felt we could win. We felt like if we got in front of a court that was willing to listen, we would prevail. And I must tell you, when we got to the US Supreme Court, we were devastated by the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, you know, she she passed away just a couple of weeks before the court's cert conference on our case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we felt that she was the linchpin to our legal position we had built the case from its inception around her perspectives on medical necessity and making sure that medications are available to those who need them uh and when we lost her we felt like we lost a critical fourth vote to get certiorari at the supreme court i think
0: um, i think most of america felt you know that um, the tremendous loss of, of rbg too. right i mean you know we're seeing it play out right now with the supreme court um you know very conservative supreme court so so to to kind of move on from this, uh, Mike, you know, the the case got dismissed. Do you think that there is some other actions um, that you or other attorneys can take, um, or 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 will be taking um, to legalize, or are you now completely focused on a legislative path uh, to legalization on the federal level?
1: Well, there there are three ways to attack this: administratively, mm-hmm. uh, through the courts, and legislatively. Uh, I would tell you right now, and for all of your listeners who are even considering an administrative review process, in other words, petitioning the DEA, as the court suggested we do, yeah. is the absolute worst approach. Uh, because number one, just recently, as a matter of fact, the DEA once again rejected a rescheduling petition. But I, 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 I'm i more concerned about the prospect that DEA might actually grant one and then move cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Mm. So. Uh, That pathway is completely off the table and no lawyer should pursue it, in my view. Um, From a judicial perspective, from a court perspective, um, I do think that there are avenues for relief uh, to pursue civil rights litigation because uh, the DEA has made it clear once again that the petitioning process is illusory. Uh, There's no path to descheduling there. So I do believe that there are ways for us to litigate this But right now, my primary focus is to try to influence the pending legislation on Capitol Hill. Uh, Right now, we have um, a number of uh, items of legislation that are pending uh, the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act that's being introduced by uh, Senators Booker, Schumer, and Wyden. Um, There is, uh, Interestingly enough, there is a piece of legislation that was recently recently introduced by uh, a, um, a member of Congress from South Carolina. Uh, Representative Mace, the State's Reform Act. And although there are parts of that act which I don't support uh, and, or which I think need to be changed, I am very heartened at the prospect that of a Republican introducing legalization legislation, or I should say decriminalization leg- legislation, descheduling legislation. So I think that that's a real opportunity. And I would love for members of Congress to call upon um, people who understand cannabis, who really know the law and who really had, in fact, had experiences with, with its wellness and medicinal effects. I'd really like for those members of Congress to invite people to Capitol Hill to discuss this issue, because I, I believe the more people hear about it, the more we will be able to dispel the myths that have unfortunately served as a corrosive influence on legislative reform for cannabis over the last 50 plus years
0: well and i think you know potentially we could be looking at another massive mistake i mean the rumor mill and the press is reporting that you know the congress may take up caoa in the spring what are your thoughts on caoa i mean we talked about the fda right so you said you know worst thing you know that could happen in cannabis is it falls in the fda jurisdiction well that's exactly what schumer and booker's bill the caoa would do right so you know what are your what are your thoughts on you know that that piece of legislation i mean let's say there's 60 votes for it uh, Today, what do you think happens? Do you think this is that's a positive or, or negative um, for patients, for consumers, for businesses, uh, for us here in New York? Uh, what
1: What are your thoughts? I think I think the CAOA has to be modified if it's to be passed. I, I'm deeply concerned about the influence of the federal, the Food and Drug Administration, over uh, cannabis. Uh, that that really concerns me. I think that we have to have a frank conversation. Uh, with members of Congress about the FDA's role, potential role in the regulation of cannabis. Um, I, I really believe that um, that's what's it, what that what is achievable right now, based upon the Republican bill that I've reviewed and the Democratic bills. Is I do believe there's an opportunity here to deschedule cannabis to provide some level of uh, expungement at the federal level. I don't believe there are enough. Um, votes on the Republican side to get state expungement, although I firmly support that. Uh, I I mean, I support decriminalization across the board, federal and state.
0: So to clarify, so what what you're talking about is basically legislation that would remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, right? So cannabis would not be a federally controlled substance. And so essentially... But it would stop there, right, in terms of, well, well, no, I mean, what you're also saying is that people in federal prison for trafficking in cannabis or, or, you know, possession, right, they would be released?
1: Well, right now, um, most of the legislation uh, that provides for expungement has some form of uh, restriction for any um, violent, what they consider to be violent offenses associated with cannabis. Uh, the problem with that is that uh, far too many persons of color have been sort of tangled up in that uh, net of prosecution. Uh, it's a very it, the federal government casts a very wide net states as well uh, of what they call violent uh, offenses, and so I'm concerned that racism has played a role in how persons of color have been prosecuted under the Controlled Substance Act. Having said that, um, I, I I genuinely believe, unfortunately, that uh, in order to get a piece of legislation passed that there will be this, uh, this hurdle to, to, cut, to get over, uh, you're gonna have, people are gonna have to prove that their, their offenses were not violent. Uh, I think the other thing, question is, how does it go into effect? Um, will it be automatic? Like in other words, you have a possession offense or a, a, a possession with the intent to distribute offense, drug traffic offense. The question would be, what do you do there? Um, is it automatic? Do you have to file a petition. I think it should be automatic. I think if you've been convicted of an offense uh, for, related to cannabis under Controlled Substances Act, you should be able to just. You, the state should be required to just review their their their, uh, their prisoners, their their convictions, and simply expunge and release without the without the need for an application process. I could see people languishing in prison for for years while their applications are being filed and they need to find lawyers and then there's gonna be disputes over what things mean and they're gonna be court cases. And in the meantime, people will stay in prison. It has to be automatic. Mm. Um, so that, that's one component of it. Obviously uh, there's also funding for social equity. Right now, Republicans are somewhat resistant. Although, uh, as I said, Representative Mace has an interesting bill. She has, for example, is adding a 3.75 excise tax to fund community reentry programs. Uh, SBA funding, law enforcement. So even even, um, you know, the Republicans are sort of starting to get on board with social equity. But I think it has to go much further than uh, what um, what Representative Mace is talking about on the federal level, like to be clear.
0: okay? because because, you know, so answer me this now, would that bill essentially take um, the responsibility to regulate from the states and put into the, it wouldn't, right? It would, uh, it would it, not. Okay, so so the states would serve their own regulatory program. I mean, they do with alcohol, right? But for instance, you could sell cannabis from Oregon to, to New York?
1: Yes, okay. yes. And, and um, that's like, it's, it's a, we're at a very interesting uh, inflection point right now, legislatively, because Republicans have begun to recognize not only that the law itself is absurd, uh, but also that they are missing out on these enormous economic opportunities to raise funds without raising income taxes. I mean, you know, Republicans, and I'm wearing my political stripes on my sleeve at the moment, but Republicans, uh, you know, tend to refer to themselves as anti-regulatory and anti-tax, anti-personal income tax, um, but they don't really have a problem with use taxes, excise taxes. So what Republicans are willing to do is to raise funds through excise taxes uh, because they've seen the experience in Colorado and other states where where cannabis is legal. uh, You know, budgets are balanced, uh, surpluses are created. So uh, Republicans are really starting to get on board. And so we have Republicans who support it for that reason. We have Democrats who support it from a, I think from a civil rights and human rights perspective. And there's a real opportunity here to harmonize these bills, to modify them and to make them Effective. Uh, The only the only question is, are we going to make the perfect the enemy of the good by you know um, pushing as hard as we can for the best possible bill to the point where Republicans walk away, or are we going to take what we can get now and then build on it? And that's going to be the challenge. Uh, So 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 you think we could
0: get now some sort of automatic expungements and a deschedule of cannabis and. Nothing more, or do you think there's there's more there um, to be to be included? Maybe an excise tax, maybe some SBA loans, grants, etc. Uh,
1: I mean, what I see is legislation that is comprehensive, but not comprehensive enough. Uh, I don't I don't see right now the Republicans agreeing to automatic expungement. expansion. Gotcha. I see them uh, favoring the petitioning process, which um, which is going to be a battle. Um, I do see them supporting a minimal social a funding for social equity. Uh, I know the Democrats are going to push hard for that. And that's another, I think, another sort of battle point on this. There's going to be questions about which is the agency that's going to have oversight. Are we even going to have a DEA for purposes of cannabis uh, 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 enforcement? I, I hope to God not. Uh, right now, most of the legislation. Well, it
0: turned to the TTB at that point, right? I mean, right. the TTB would essentially be, and and you know, I own a wine company. The TTB is not easy to deal with in any way, shape, or form. And so, when we're talking about excise tax, that's where I get a little. I mean, you're talking about 3.75%. Well, Schumer's bill, who Schumer's a majority leader, and you know, Cory Booker is a very powerful. Fan. I mean, you know, let's not, you know, um, let's not be fooled there. I mean, they're they're definitely running the show on cannabis. Um, and yep. their bill, you know. We're talking about up to 25% excise tax on the federal level. I mean, you can't, in my opinion, you know, the senator may come out and say we're against big businesses, but in reality, a 25% excise tax only, only, allows for uh, companies with economies of scale and probably nationwide distribution to be successful. 25% excise tax, that's just on the federal level. I mean, that talk about stifling, right? Right. I mean, in my opinion, you can't get any more anti equity than layering on regulations and fees and taxes to a point where, you know, you, you can't really have a viable legal industry. And really the only now you're just creating a whole new class of criminals. And we're just calling them you know, uh, tax evaders and uh, the, you know, uh, illicit market, right? And, and we're just, you know, right where, where California is, because that's on top of any state level taxes, too.
1: Uh, I, I agree with you. And, and it sort of dovetails into the whole issue with the FDA as well. Um, because when you when you're looking at FDA oversight, what you're really doing is inviting multi state operators and big pharma to come in as the only um, orga- organizations that can compete. And, you know, complete these processes. by the same token, as you point out, you know if you have this enormous excise tax, it really is going to favor the large, large companies, and it's going to kill the mom and pops. Uh, and that really is disconcerting to me because we see the, you know the, the influence of big Pharma in so many aspects of our lives. And I, I really think it's important for us to try to do what we can, uh, especially through uh, grants to the SBA. To support mom and pops and local growers, I think that's really important, and, and I, I hope that we can we can ensure that the 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 CAOA is modified. And you're right; those guys sort of run the show, but they're not going to get to sixty. There's no way they're getting to sixty with twenty five percent excess excise tax.
0: Yeah, I don't even know if they get to fifty. Yeah, (laughs) you know, I don't I don't I don't think so. And uh, yeah, 25% excise tax. The FDA issue is huge. I mean, there's a lot of issues with the CAOA. And yet we just saw again in the discussions of the Defense Authorization Act is no willingness to, you know, depart from full uh, legalization, right? Right. and, and, you know, this is where I get a little suspicious, right? I get a little suspicious in terms of, you know, is this, are we really talking about, you know, equity and activism that's, you know, pushing them to say, hey, all or nothing, or are we really talking about large cannabis companies really, you know, saying, hey, listen, you know, full legalization, you know, we need a regulatory framework, et cetera, et cetera. Because, I mean, it really almost looks like Prohibition 2.0, you yeah. know, the CAOA. So. You know, this is. I think. I think that this is a problem. And I think, you know, from a political reality standpoint, um, you, know, you mentioned gay marriage, and I think gay marriage is a very interesting issue to look at, right? Because I do think that you have this tipping point phenomenon when it comes to, you know, these large changes in our society. Um, in terms, you know, gay marriage is a perfect example, right? You have, you know, very little support, very little support, and all of a sudden. You have an outpouring of support. It's the same thing here. I really do think that the results in New Jersey on the referendum, you know, switching cannabis here, the referendum in New Jersey, and just seeing that first off, there is was no really difference between your blue counties and your red counties in terms of support for legalizing cannabis. It reaches a tipping point, and now all of a sudden. You, you know, so many people in your daily life, your family members, your friends who consume cannabis and who are okay with this, that it becomes, you know, overwhelmingly popular and cannabis is overwhelmingly popular. And for me, it seems like, you know, low hanging fruit. If the Dems, you know, want to see, it seem as if they, they're they getting things done in an election year, um, which also again, worries me, you know, the CEO, but like I said, I don't think it, it goes anywhere. Now, do you think, and you're a lot closer to this issue too, though. You do you think that there is a realm of possibility that next year we get something passes what you're talking about a a, a deschedule some sort of expungement whether it's petitioning or, or or automatic?
1: You know, we're right now in, in in the middle of the 117th Congress. It's it's hard to predict what is going to happen. But if I were if I were speaking to members of Congress right now, what I would tell them is that. Passing descheduling uh, legislation with ex- automatic expungement, funding for social equity, and and reduced regulatory oversight is in everyone's interest: Democrats, Republicans, and and the President, Democrat. But I'll tell you why. If we if we pass some bill, that that begins, let's say we we call it the Mace something else Act. Mace is the Demo- the Republican from South Carolina, and we put her name on the bill. And we get Republicans behind that and we add safe banking to it. And I'm sure you know, safe banking has passed the House multiple times. It's got over 180 sponsors. Uh, And if we pass some version of that along with the Republican bill, and we add, as I said, appropriate funding for social equity automatic expungent limited regulatory oversight. It's a win for the Republicans because they can say, hey, listen, they worked off of our bill. The Democrats can say, hey, yeah, we may have worked off of your bill, but we were bipartisan and this is a Democratic-controlled Congress. Look what we did. The president gets to put his name on it and he gets to say, I ended cannabis prohibition. It's a win for the Republicans. It's a win for the Democrats. It's a win for the White House. And it's a win for all of America, Mm -hmm. because as I'm sure you know, your listeners know, over 95 percent of Americans support legal medical cannabis over 70% of Americans support adult use, a majority of Democrats, Republicans, independents. Uh, It is a win, 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 win across the board. Uh, And the only question in my mind is, are people gonna put their egos aside and just do something for the American people, put the politics away and just try to get something done? I mean, I'll tell you this, Kaylin, and this will shock you and shocks most people, the percentage of Americans who believe that the Emancipation Proclamation was correct, that freed the slaves is 70%. Wow. Okay, more people support legalized cannabis than support the Emancipation Proclamation. It's very difficult to get this many Americans to agree on anything. And here we have one of the most popular ideas in America today, that's supported by Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, and persons across the um, demographic spectrum, across all ethnicities, all all races, sexual orientations, all age groups. Everybody believe almost everyone believes in some form of legalization. Yeah. So let's do it.
0: Yeah, so let's do it. I mean, so you know, Mike, is your 2022 spending a lot of time in the Beltway getting this done, or what? What is your what is your agenda look like this year?
1: I I I. I have to be a little bit circumspect in what I'm doing, uh, but I will tell you this. Um, in, in, from 2017 to 2019, uh, I devoted uh, at least a third of my time, if not more, to the, le- uh, the legalization case, Washington versus Barr. Uh, I will be spending a lot of time uh, trying to work behind the scenes to try to pass legislation at the federal level that achieves the objectives we talked about. Limited regulation, Funding for social equity, automatic expungement of criminal records, release of, uh, of people from prison. And I mean, I'm not going to be able to get decriminalization at the state level, but I, I will be pushing for that in the future. And if, if, if we are successful there, I mean, in the end, I mean, that's that's a win for everyone.
0: Oh, for sure. So how can the listeners help you on that?
1: Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I think I would ask your listeners to keep an eye out um, for petitions, uh, for, uh, um, for anything you see that's written on social media that is supportive op-eds, and then share and promote and, and, and market from a political perspective, from a grassroots organizing perspective. Do it every, every time you see an article that favors legalization, put it on your Twitter feed, tweet it to, um, to members of Congress, uh, write your letters to uh, Senators Wyden, Booker, and Schumer, and to uh, Representative Mace, and to, you know, Barbara Lee, and, um, and uh, you know, um, Earl Blumenauer, and, and Jerry Nadler, and, and try, and your own representatives, push and push, because that's the way things get done. You know, we would, you know, when I first became an attorney, I believed in a very naive way that if I was right about something, I was going to win. And what I found out was that's just not the way the world works. You have to fight for every inch of space that you want. Everything that you believe in, it's not enough to be right. You've got to be overwhelming, especially if you want to change something that's as entrenched as the Controlled Substances Act is. So, listeners, um, write your letters, retweet, repost, use Instagram, Facebook, whatever program and platform you're familiar with that you're comfortable with, use it. And together, We'll be able to get this done.
0: Awesome. And what platform are you most active on, Mike? You know where the listeners follow you? Twitter, LinkedIn, what is it? Oh,
1: um, that's another good question. Uh, So I, I, I am, I'm actually not great at social media. Hmm. Um, You know, um, me either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, but um, right now the platform that I use mostly is Twitter, um, and my handle is. I should probably make sure I tell you the listeners the right one. So my, my platform, my uh, Twitter handle is at Mike Hiller, NYC, at Mike Hiller, NYC. And, um, you know, when you get to that, uh, my, my page, you'll see that uh, the, right on the, the photograph of me is in front of uh, the courthouse when I just after I finished arguing um, Washington versus Barr. Um, and uh, keep an eye out because we will be posting a lot in the next couple of weeks.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Mike. Uh, This is, like I said, it's been a back-to-back Hiller episode. Uh, Jess was amazing. Uh, You have amazing attorneys. I mean, Lauren, uh, so much respect for, for Lauren Rudick and, and Jess Gonzalez and yourself. Um, So, you know, you guys are doing some amazing work over there. So definitely keep that up.
1: Thank you so much. I, I, I'm so proud of the team we have assembled here and, um, and uh, i you know every day i can't wait to get to work to find out what we're doing next it's just great
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Empire State of Cannabis. Uh, You know, it's starting to be legislative season, budget season in New York, things are going to heat up. We've got some really cool special guests lined up in the future. So as always, you got to like and subscribe, you got to subscribe in order to know when the next episode is out, you're going to miss it. It could be very timely. So don't miss it. Uh, Also go back in the archives, we've got some great episodes going back all the way to uh, early 2020.